Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune, and ND Insider. This is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold, an ND Insider podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Pot of Gold Podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's. Satisfy your craving for hand-breaded chicken and fresh-made salads. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today or order online at zaxby's.com forward slash podcast. And Tire Rack, the way tire buying should be. Notre Dame finished its regular season with a 45-24 to victory at Stanford on Saturday. Brian Kelly drank some red Gatorade from the Legends Trophy, and now we await the bowl destination for the Irish, and more likely the bowl opponent. We think we know where they're headed, likely the Camping World Bowl. With Notre Dame's coaching staff hitting the road for recruiting in the early signing period just two weeks away, we thought it would be a good week to talk a little bit of recruiting with a bit of a throwback feel. This wa- That's why we caught up with former Notre Dame recruiting coordinator Vinny Serrato last week. Vinny spent six years working at Notre Dame under Lou Holtz from 1985 to 91 before working as a scout and in the front office for the San Francisco 49ers and the Washington Redskins. He joined us with some stories and lessons from his career. Vinny, you had a pretty quick rise to a prominent role under uh, Lou Holtz. After two years as a graduate assistant at Minnesota, you became the recruiting coordinator, and then you followed Lou to Notre Dame. I'm, I'm kind of curious, why do you think Lou Holtz sort of trusted you with that responsibility so early in your career? Um, that would probably be a better question for him, <laughs> but uh, I was the recruiting coordinator. Well, I was graduate assistant at Minnesota, and then – um, there were seven of us that were GAs, and our recruiting coordinator at Minnesota left, and he asked all of us if we, if any of us wanted to apply for the recruiting coordinator job at Minnesota, go talk to him. And I used to drive him to the airport all the time when he would go for speeches and stuff, and part of my duties as a graduate assistant was summer jobs. So... Um, he came out one day and he said, we needed a job for such and such. And I said, okay. Then he came back a few hours later and said, coach, I got him a job, you know, everything's set. And he said, I need to talk to you, you know? And then he took me, we were driving to the airport one day and he says, do you want to be the recruiting coordinator? I said, not really. I said, I want to be like the receiver coach or running back coach. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, why don't you try it? And when one of those guys leaves, um, then I'll move you into that spot. 
said, okay. You know, so then I did it, and I really liked it. And um, that was that. And I think that's, you know, probably why he took me to Notre Dame, too. Sure. Why, why do you think you sure. maybe I, adapted so naturally to that, and it, and it became something that you end up being interested in maybe after you didn't think you would be in the first place? I liked it because, like, with coaching, I could tell you every day on Monday they always did this. You know, on Tuesday, mm-hmm. it was so structured on exactly what you're doing. And with the recruiting, it was always something different every day, you know, um, talking to different kids, trying to, you know, figure out mail outs. And I, I really enjoyed that part of it. And I didn't know that I would, but I did. And like when Lou went to Notre Dame, he asked me, he says, what do you want to coach at Notre Dame? I said, are you going to have a full-time recruiting coordinator? He said, that's, I'd like to do that. He said, let me think about it. And then he did. Vinny, um, when you came in, you know, you followed Jerry Faust's regime. What was the talent like when you walked in the door and what did Notre Dame need the most at that time? Um, speed. I mean, we had Timmy Brown, you know, um, we just needed speed. We ended up, uh, five and six and we just lacked a lot of speed. I remember Jim Strong saying to me when we played, no, Coach Holtz said to me, when we, we played down in Legion Field in Birmingham and got, got spanked by Alabama. He came on the bus that right next to me says, we got to get talent like everybody else. And it's interesting. I my recollection of you was that you were ahead of the curve all the time with recruiting. Um, I think there was one of the Orange Bowl games. You were on a what would have been a cell phone at that time, which was rare, talking to recruits from the sideline. If I remember that right, what what gave you your ideas to just be so innovative in the recruiting process? I just tried to think the things that, you know, uh, I mean, I was, what, 23 or 24 at the time. So a lot of these kids that I'm recruiting, I wasn't that much older then. And, mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm thinking to myself, all right, what would impress me? What would I like? You know, um, because when we were playing in the national championship game, I called uh, Meyer. I called Rick during the game because I knew he was watching. And I stood next to our offensive coordinator, and Rick knew our offense. So I was telling him what every play was. So him and his buddies, they were sitting there, and Rick was calling out the plays as we were playing West Virginia. Vinny, when did you maybe feel like you were comfortable and, and felt like you had a good grasp on how to evaluate high school athletes? Um, you know what? When I was a graduate assistant in Minnesota, Gerald O'Dell, who was a recruiting coordinator, and then he became associate AD, he sat down with me. And we watched film and he told me, you know, like things that he looked for, little little things that he looked for, like finding out, you know, the athleticism and stuff. So Gerald O'Dell was the one that uh, sat down with me and kind of helped me and teach me how to watch film. I mean, because you can just sit there and watch film, but if you don't know what you're looking for, you're just wasting your time. Sure. Now, Tom Lemming, who we get all of our sage recruiting advice from, uh, he uh, kind of credited you with being able to recognize athletic ability um, and sometimes being able to uh, anticipate maybe some position switches for guys or also learning from uh, a guy's athletic ability from watching him play other sports. When did you kind of re- realize the value in that? Uh, 
Uh, Tony Rice, I never saw him play football. Saw him play basketball. He was a phenomenal athlete playing basketball. And Tommy Carter, I watched play basketball. You know, a lot of these guys, um, I wanted to see their feet and hips. You know, and I could see their feet and hips playing basketball, especially, you know, we always wanted to recruit as many option quarterbacks at that time as we could because they could play so many different positions. You know, a lot of them end up being defensive backs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in high school at that time, the best athletes were the running backs and option quarterbacks. And if you look at our defensive backfield, Tommy Carter was a quarterback, Jeff Burris running back. You know, all, a lot of these guys that were high draft picks were those kind of position, positions, and it was easy to transfer them, you know, to the other side of the ball. Vinny, what was your relationship like with the admissions office? Did you have to massage that at all? What did they think of you uh, and that kind of stuff? Uh, with the admissions, Kevin Kevin Rooney, I'd go running with him. and so, I mean, I tried to create a relationship because it was a situation where um, I knew that I needed them, you know, so it was uh, – it was a situation that uh, you wanted to be friendly. You couldn't have them against you because then you had no shot at getting kids in. Um, so was it a great relationship? I think it was okay. You know, um, they didn't like how I pushed. And, you know, I mean, I, under, I understand that because I, I would, for a great player, you know, who was like questionable academically for Notre Dame, you know, like iffy if he could get in or not get in. The interview was a big part of it, so I would just try to get the kid on campus. He was a very good interview-type kid because a lot of times they would uh, give that kid the benefit of the doubt because admissions knew what type of personality could make it at Notre Dame. You're listening to the Pot of Gold podcast presented by Zaxby's. Before we hear more from Vinny Serrato, let's take a short break. We know you like football. So do we. We're TireRack.com, and this is our version of a two-minute drill, except it's only 30 seconds. TireRack.com has an enormous selection of tires. Not sure which ones to buy? Use our tire decision guide to find the right tires for your vehicle and the way you drive. Then get them shipped fast and free on all orders over $50. Shipping is in as little as one day. Free. TireRack.com ships to independent, recommended installers. TireRack.com. The way tire buying should be. Touchdown! Vinny, is there a recruit or two that maybe you're most proud of uh, that that panned out that you sort of stuck your neck out for or taking a ch- took a chance on? Um, taking a chance, I don't think I really had to take a chance on anybody because um, coach let me kind of do uh, you know what I thought needed to be done. Um, taking a chance on a guy, um, probably one the ones I'm most like. Uh, uh, Bryant Young, because, you know, um, he was a wrestler, really good wrestler. And, like, Michigan wasn't even recruiting him. They were recruiting a different kid at his school, and then we were recruiting B.Y. And because we were recruiting B.Y., then all of a sudden uh, <laughs> they wanted to recruit B.Y. Um, so, like, Bryant Young, Derek Brown was probably the hardest one that I had to recruit. I mean, just because, you know, it was – Miami and Florida and his high school coach was a Florida alum. So I never spoke to the high school coach one time 
because he didn't want me in the school or anything because he wanted to go to Florida. <laughs> so, I mean, the, there was uh, different things like that that made it extremely interesting, you know, because a lot of times I didn't talk to the high school coach. And the University of Miami thought that the dad was making the call on that one, and it was mom and the two twin sisters who I became, like, best friends with at the time, you know. So um, a lot of it was you got to know who's making the decision with the kid. Yeah, Vinny, when did you sort of yeah. learn how important that was and when you needed to figure out, okay, who, who, who do I need to get in the ear of to help, to, to help convince this kid? When, when did that sort of click in your mind? Did you, did you learn that early on? Oh, yeah, that was right away. That was right away. And you know what I, I would do, like, to the kids, like, my first year, two years, what I would do was I would ask the kids that we recruited, what, what impressed you in the recruiting process? What did you guys like? You know, so then, okay, I didn't like, like I, I remember them saying once um, football started, like, once school started in September, any letter that came in the mail – Unless it was handwritten, I just throw it in a box. So once September started, any mail outs that we did, I never had them just with a label on it because I knew it would just go in a box. All that, you know, just little stuff like that, you know, I, I would I would do. And, you know, what I would do too was, like my top 40 kids, when we would play an away game, I would get uh, – postcards from the hotel we were going to stay at and I get them in the summertime and then I would have uh, like one of my student assistants in the summertime handwrite a postcard for that for the kid you know like um um hope your game was good last night I'm at the hotel you know just thinking about you kind of thing so um then what I would do the week prior to that team I would send them to one of the alums that I would know in, say, Detroit or whatever, where the hotel would be, and then I'd have him pop it in the in the uh, mail on Monday or Tuesday, so the kid would get the postcard on Saturday at his house the day we were playing, and he'd be like, "Man, I got a postcard from the hotel!" You know, he'd be so impressed. You know, all <laughs> that kind of stuff. Vinny, I know back when you were recruiting, there wasn't the internet and rivals and all this stuff, but I would imagine the the quote-unquote five-star kids kind of knew who they were. They knew who were the elite guys. Was there a difference in the recruiting process with those guys versus guys that were a little bit more off the radar in terms of how much love you needed to show them? Um. I guess kind of, but like, um, what, I, what was different then was it seemed like the higher, I mean, the higher rated kids knew who the other good kids were, you know, like the year we took Derek Brown as a tight end, he was the number one tight end in the country, number one recruit in the country. The following year, we're recruiting the number one tight end in the country, Herb Smith. And when he came in on his visit, I put, Herb with Derek, you know, and Derek's like recruiting Herb to come and saying, Herb, there's plenty of plays for both of us. We just want to win. You know, the more good players we have, the better chance we have to win. And then both of them went back to back first round picks, you know, so I think that's different now. You know, 
I mean, look at a kid. If a kid's not starting, he jumps in the portal and he's gone. So I think that's a little bit different than it was then because I think kids would, um, you know, like we got Ricky Waters and Tony Brooks. They were the top two running backs in the country. I don't, I don't know that that happens much anymore. Vinny, um, just kind of flipping the switch to today's Notre Dame, do you feel like recruiting has changed so much that the way that you did things, other than the fact that you'd have to be a position coach, do you think you could still use the techniques you used back in the 80s to to be successful in this day and age? Yeah, I think it's still about uh, relationships, and it's still about trust. You know, and it's still about finding out who's making the decision. I mean, my thing was, you know, I wanted to be so close to that kid that he couldn't tell me no. You know, and I would talk to them. I'd know everybody in the family. You know, I would know the brothers and sisters' names. If I would call them on a Sunday and the brother answered the phone and the kid wasn't there, I'd talk to the brother for five or ten minutes. You know, so um, I, I sales is still sales. You know, and I, I think uh, what worked back then still works now, you know, except that, uh, you know, with all the uh, different technology, you know, with the Internet and tweeting and all those things, it's probably a little more difficult because everybody knows everything. Vinny, you worked in the NFL for a long time with the 49ers and the Redskins. I'm I'm curious, did you, do you ever miss this recruiting aspect that you developed at Notre Dame and in the college ranks, or were you able to find ways to, to I know the recruiting isn't the same way when you're, when you're going after uh, in your scouting players, but was there ways that you could uh, incorporate that into your, your jobs in the NFL? No, not really. The thing that I missed, I missed going to the kids' homes just because you had to be on. And even if you were tired or whatever, you couldn't screw up because you only had three opportunities to be in the kid's house. So I did miss that, you know, and like the relationships, like I'm still friends with uh, Todd White's parents. And, you know, I still, a lot of the parents I still know. And like when we had the reunion last year for the Michigan game, it was kind of cool to see everybody and see what everybody's doing, you know, and they're thanking you because you had such a big part of their life. And I think that's pretty cool. And, you know, and then when I was in San Fran, we had the ability to draft Bryant Young, Ricky Waters, you know, uh, Junior Bryant, so uh, Anthony Peterson. You know, so I got a chance to be around, you know, still some of the guys. And, and how about I saw today that, you know, in the uh, Hall of Fame stuff, Ricky Waters and B.Y. are in the semifinalists to become Hall of Famers. And if, how about if they get in, you know, and we got Bethes in, there'd be three kids from Notre Dame that uh, – that I recruited, that that would be extremely cool. Vinny, from the evaluation standpoint, when you moved on to the NFL, what were what were the major differences, or were there any major differences in how you went about about evaluating guys, and was it maybe easier because you sort of knew who you were going after, and there were maybe less unheralded guys, or did that make it harder because you were less likely to find, uh, or not less likely to, uh, biggest, to discover those guys? The biggest difference was. Um, when I was in at Notre Dame, it was all about projections. You were projecting a tight end to be an offensive tackle. You were projecting, you know, a quarterback to be a defensive back. In the NFL, when you went in and evaluated a kid, 
Um, what you're evaluating him as is pretty much what he was going to play. So that was the biggest difference in uh, the two. Vinny, um, how much Notre Dame football do you get a chance to watch these days, and how would you maybe compare Notre Dame's talent level to the Holtz years when you were there? Um, I watched quite a bit. My wife went to Notre Dame, and my son's hockey coach is a huge Notre Dame fan, and we were just there like three weeks ago. We were there during the bye week. Um, my son had a hockey tournament there. So we were there for that that weekend. Um, and Reggie Brooks, you know, Reggie Brooks gave the whole hockey team a tour and everything. So it was, it was fun. Um, the difference, I, I, I don't think they have the um, – we always had a guy that was probably up for the Heisman and stuff, and I don't think they have that explosive playmaker that we had. We had Timmy Brown. We had Rocket Ishmael. You know, those kind of guys. I don't think they have that elite guy like that, you know, or, you know, maybe even like Ricky Waters was those, you know, the elite guys. And, you know, I'm sure they, and Tony Rice was, you know, he was an elite college player, but he was an elite leader, you know, and when he's back now, when I saw him at Star Reunion, he's still like kind of, still kind of, is still the guy that everybody kind of looks to. And I hadn't been around their team to know yet, but just that kind of leadership that we had. Vinny, just kind of given the changes in the college football landscape or whatever, do you think that Notre Dame, let's say in the next five years, could still win a national title? Absolutely. I mean, when I went there, people said, oh, you can't win at Notre Dame anymore. Academics are too tough. It's all BS. You know, I mean – Kids are better students nowadays, so you got a bigger pool. So it's all about evaluation. And so what I said when I was there, it's all about evaluation. You can still win a championship at Notre Dame. You just got to evaluate properly. Vinny, I understand you follow the Ravens closely, working for 105.7 The Fan in Baltimore. How impressed have you been with uh, Ronnie Stanley on the offensive line there? Ronnie's been doing good. He's getting better. He's getting better. You know, um, he's extremely athletic. He's not the most physical guy in the world, but he's athletic, and I think he knows what his strengths and weaknesses are. And he's become a very good pass protector. And then how about Miles Boykin being in his rookie season? I know he's not involved in the offense a lot, but do you think there's a bright future for him? Yeah, he made a nice catch last night. You know, and it reminded me of when I was at the Michigan game a year ago. Same types of catch he made at Michigan, I think, from like out of the end zone when they threw it. And he's a good at making the contested catches. He's still a raw and still has work to do, but he made a really nice catch last night that uh, hopefully gives him some confidence going forward. Vinny, as as you kind of watch Notre Dame games, is there someone that jumps out at you in terms of, boy, if I were still doing the pro football thing, I'd love to have him on my team? Anybody that jumps out at me like that, um, I don't know that anybody jumps out. Like, I don't see a Rocket Ishmael or yeah. Ricky Waters or anybody like that. You know, and defensively, I don't know that I see a Bryant Young or a Todd Light. I don't see the. I mean, Todd's on the standing on the sidelines. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't think I see the. 
do you see? I, I don't see the top ten draft pick. Yeah, you know, I think that's the biggest difference with Notre Dame. You know, compared to the teams that are in the top four in the playoffs, they have more top draft picks than um, Notre Dame does. Last one for me, Vinny. Uh, do you still have contact with Coach Holtz? And if so, how often do you guys talk? What do you talk about? I just talked to him uh, last week. And um, actually, I called him because I had him talk to my 14-year-old uh, hockey player about how to prepare for games. And, and Coach talked to him like for about 20 minutes on, you know, just things that he needs to be aware of, what he needs to do, just kind of like a motivational-type talk, you know, which is pretty cool. All right, Vinny, that's all we have for you. We appreciate you taking time to join us today and sharing some of your insights. You're listening to the Pot of Gold Podcast presented by Zaxby's. True crime lovers are always looking for new and engaging content. The Already Gone Podcast covers stories from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. Cases you haven't heard before, like the Mayo Hunters or the murder of 16-year-old Justin Mello, plus better-known cases like the death of Jane Bashara and Illinois' own Lori Dan. Already Gone started in 2016, so there is a big back catalog for you to enjoy. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or your favorite podcatcher. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Notre Dame will hand out some awards at its annual Echo Show next week, Eric, so I thought we could share some of our predictions of who will take home some of that hardware. First one I have for us is Offensive Newcomer of the Year. Who do you think, and to be clear, it's who we think they'll give it to, not who we think deserves it, well, necessarily. I, I, I'm going to give both, if you don't mind. Okay, that. yeah, that's fine. Um Offensive newcomer of the year last year was a senior, Dexter Williams. So <laughs> yeah. these there's a lot of twisted logic with these. They want to give as many people trophies as they can. But sometimes – I thought Julian Love was the MVP last year. They invented an award called Back of the Year for <laughs> right, him. Right. So with that in mind, offensive newcomer of the year, I think they will give it to Cole Komet, a junior tight end, who I think should get it is Braden Lindsay, a sophomore wide receiver. Yeah, I think I agree with you on both of that. I, I didn't come up with guys who I think I would give it to, um, but I did come up with guys who I think it would. And like you, like you mentioned, the, the newcomer of the year, just, it never seems as new as you think it should be. And right. so I think uh, Cole Komet, for having a breakout season, um, will, will win the award. Next one, defensive newcomer of the year. Same logic, I'm going with Asmar Bilal, a oh, wow. fifth-year senior <laughs> linebacker who's already been a starter. <laughs> yeah. And for I mean, and for um, who, who think? I think it yeah. should be, and maybe this will actually be the case, Jeremiah Uwusu Koromoa. But when you start to look at what how all the awards are stacked, there may not be a place to give Asmar an award. And and by the way, congratulations to him. He made the Pro Football Focus All America honorable mention team. Yeah, that that's a a big deal. I don't think anyone would have even even now anticipated that he would have made that team. So that's that was cool to see. I saw you tweeted that. Um, I, I think Jeremiah Usu Kormo will get it. Um, I think you can make an argument for Drew White as well. I think any of the linebackers, in theory, would, would all be good candidates. Um, so I went with Jeremiah Usu Kormo for my prediction there. Next one is Special Teams Player of the Year. 
For me, this is a slam dunk. I don't know if it is for Brian Kelly and company, but I'm going to say Jonathan Dorr on both counts, who I think will get it, who I think should get it. Uh, see, I think they're going to go with John Shannon. I think they've recently embraced trying to give him some pub- publicity. Obviously, he's up for the, the long snapper of the year award. They gave him the game ball after the after the right. Stanford game. So it wouldn't surprise me if they gave it to John Shannon. Jonathan Dorr may, may have chances to win it down the line, so they'll give it to, to John Shannon. Right, and remember, there's tricky ones like the student-athlete award, which drew tranquil. That's sure. where they would tuck him. Right, and so we don't know if, if these guys could, could maybe fit in there or, like you mentioned, right. they make up an award for, for a guy. or um, John Shannon as the back of the year. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, next one, Offensive Player of the Year. I think they will pick Claypool. I would pick Komet, and you'll understand my reasoning when we get through all sure. these. And I think they'll go with Ian Book, um, and I think you will understand my reasoning when we get through to the end, too. And defensive player of the year, who do you think this one will be? I think it sh- they'll pick Khalid Cream, and I think it should be Khalid Cream. Yeah, this was a, a tough one for me. It was a bit of a toss-up between Khaled and Alohi Gilman. I think those are the two that yeah. have good good cases for winning Defensive Player of the Year. I think it will be Khaled. Um, I think I, I would probably agree that I, it probably should be, but I wouldn't be surprised if it were Alohi. But again, last year, Tillery got lineman of the year, right. which is defensive lineman, so they could go that direction. Absolutely, but I think... Him being, especially with all the injuries they had on the defensive line, him being in there right. game in and game out, I think um, that might be what separates him from Alohi uh, because of the kind of the wear and tear he's he's withstood. And then last one, most valuable player, who do you think it will be? I think they'll pick Book again okay. to repeat. I think it should be Claypool, and I would make Book back of the year. <laughs> and uh, I think he's had a good season, but I think Claypool is the guy, and and I think that the team will name Book. Right, and that's that. That's why I went for my MVP prediction with Chase Claypool, and then obviously I mentioned Ian Book as Offensive Player of the Year. I think, especially since Ian won it last year, I feel like there maybe be more open to giving it to someone else. And, and Chase has just been so reliable for them, um, especially in the month of November, him him pushing his touchdown total up to twelve um, with a really strong last five games. So I think. Um, in my mind, he probably should be, and, and I think um, there's a pretty good chance that he could be named the most valuable player by Notre Dame at the award show. All right, now it's time for Keeping Up with the Joneses. With the regular season coming to a close, it seems only fitting that we wrap up how the season went for each of the Joneses. Running back Tony Jones Jr. made 11 starts in all 11 games that he played. He only missed the Virginia Tech game with his rib injury. He had 133 carries for 722 yards and five touchdowns and 13 catches for 103 yards and one touchdown. He sort of peaked in the middle of the season with a three-game stretch of 100-yard games against Virginia, Bowling Green, and USC, which included 176 yards in the win over the Trojans. Jameer Jones had a bigger uh, season than anticipated. Ended up making three starts and played in 10 games. He stepped up after Dalen Hayes' season was ended with a torn labrum. He finished with 24 tackles. Six and a half tackles for a loss and four and a half sacks, which is second on the team behind only Khalid Kareem. And uh, he had one sack in each game for four straight games, Virginia Bowling Green, USC, and Michigan. And that was right around the time when they decided to activate him instead of redshirting him for next season. And the other two Joneses, linebacker Jonathan Jones, played in all 12 games on special teams, only made one tackle, um, is, a, is a member of the punt return team, and unfortunately gained some notoriety um, for trying to recover the blocked punt against Michigan that, that went wrong. And then Micah Jones, Notre Dame has him listed as playing in four games, but that didn't include the Duke game, which 
I know that he played in because he was given a personal foul penalty late in the game. Uh, so one of the Duke defenders was kind of uh, getting into it with uh, Dylan Gibbons, and Micah Jones came in and shoved him, and he got a penalty for that. So his his role was limited, and um, not really sure where he fits in in the wide receiver picture for next season. He's got some work to do, but is it certainly a big body? So maybe if they can continue to develop him, maybe he can be a, a bit of a late bloomer for Notre Dame. Which which of these four do you think should would be your Jones of the year, Eric? Well. Tony Jones Jr. is the obvious one, and I also think the one that should get it just because I can't imagine what Notre Dame's running game would have been without right. him. Yes. I think Notre Dame's defensive line, I think Isaiah Foskey could have been activated and you would have had a pretty good defensive end. But I'm telling you what, Jameer Jones has my unbelievable respect. His numbers when Okora went down – Jameer's numbers were almost identical to Cora as a non-starter and a guy that didn't play in the first two games. And then he was productive once Julian was out of there. And so you didn't miss Julian. I think Julian did a lot of things that didn't show up in his stats this year, including dropping and coverage and so forth. And I'm not downgrading Julian, but Jameer Jones deserves some kind of Jones award. I don't know what it is. <laughs> we can create our own Jones. <laughs> yes. Surprise Jones of the year. Surprise Jones of the year, <laughs> yeah. yes. Um, yeah, I agree. I think there's a good chance that Notre Dame maybe loses a game in the middle of the season if it, if, it, if not for Tony Jones Jr. The way he was playing in the middle of the season was very USC. valuable. He hasn't been the same since that rib injury in the Michigan game, and I think it may still be affecting him. One place I've kind of noticed it is – in pass protection, he hasn't been as good. He's given up. He's been. He still. Well, he's not afraid of guys, but he's not hitting them in the same way and and maintaining contact on the pass protection as he has. So I think he may be protecting himself a little bit still um, with that rib injury. Um, but over overall body of work, I think Tony Jones Jr. deserves it for uh, hanging with it, um, having strong performances, and even in this last game against Stanford, had had the the screen pass for a touchdown and. Certainly, it wasn't the hardest <laughs> hardest uh, yards earned of the season, but he 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 played it the right way and allowed them to to get in the end zone. All right, now it's time for punctuation mark of the year. Mrs. Judy Mitchelson Hicks. Sometimes with a hyphen, sometimes without a hyphen. Sometimes she spells the hyphen. This is our segment to recognize the apostrophes, hyphens, and periods on Notre Dame's roster. Since we've been talking about awards, I figured it would be fitting to give out our own regular season award for the punctuation mark. And so I think that we should give it to Jeremiah Usukoromoa, the starting rover. He had a team-high nine tackles against Stanford, finished 12 games with 71 tackles, nine and a half tackles for a loss, which is just a half a tackle for a loss behind Khaled Kareem for the team-high. He has two and a half sacks, four pass breakups, two quarterback hurries, one forced fumble, and one fumble recovery. Eric, what do you think of how Jeremiah played this season and then um, what do you think about his future moving forward? Do you think he should stay out at Rover, move inside at Buck with a with an opening there for Asmar Bilal? How, how do you see things shaking out um, going into next season for Jeremiah? Well, in terms of how I thought he played this year, I thought it was remarkable to watch how he started out and how the learning curve got even better. And right. if a learning curve can be better, <laughs> I'm probably using the wrong terminology there, but just the growth in his game from week to week and being able to be a true rover at times and, and what that position asked for and to be kind of a second buck in certain games. And so, you know, and he was even called to be a nickel in one of the right. games with Sean Crawford. So, yeah, he, even if he didn't have punctuation mark, I would put <laughs> it in there like 
Jordan Jen Markeith doesn't have it. I would sneak it in there so he could get the support. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, now let's look at 2020. I think it really will come down to, and I think there's going to be some jockeying for positions even among starters just because the backups are so good. Mm-hmm. I, I think the starters will prevail, but I think there's some really good backups. But really it comes down to, I, I think he can do either really well. Right. Do you want Paul Mawala and Jack Kaiser on the field at Rover? Or do you want Jack Lamb or Shane Simon or somebody like that at Buck? Right. Who's the better guy there? Because I think uh, Jeremiah can slide either way and be sure. an outstanding starter. What do you think? Yeah, I think Jeremiah has the highest ceiling of anyone at the Rover position. And it just seems to be such a valuable position that I would want I would my first instinct would be to leave him out there and make up the difference at the buck linebacker. Whether or not maybe Paul Mawala can move inside and play buck linebacker well right. too. They're both two sixteen right now, so somebody'd have to put on some weight. Sure. Um but I think I think they probably have a pretty good understanding of what they want to do going in the offseason already. So whoever would be that candidate could certainly have a head start on doing that and not have to wait till the spring to, to start figuring out what they're gonna do next season. Um, so especially with Jack Lamb and, and Shane Simon coming back from injury issues um, this season, uh, I would think that you, you want to get someone in there at Buck. And, and um, so whether or not they would move Paul or move Jeremiah, I think they, it would be prudent to do that right. pretty soon um, to get those guys prepared for next season um, and, and figure out um, how to how to fill that hole that Asmar will be creating because – like you mentioned earlier, Asmar's had a, a, a very good season and um, will be a, a big missing piece to Notre Dame's defense next year. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First question we have is from Josh Melton at – Joshua Melton, Ian's book's final season numbers look great. The last few games seemed like the light bulb went on. How much of that is due to what might be seen as playing bad defenses? Do you think this is a sustainable over an entire season and against good teams like Wisconsin and Clemson? I think that's an I think that's the question of the year. <laughs> an impossible really. question to answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at the um defensive ratings and pass efficiency defense and total defense. And he faced extremes. He faced three of the worst pass defenses in the country in Boston College and Bowling Green and uh, and New Mexico. And he faced number three in Georgia. Michigan was 30, Virginia Tech 28, uh, and then Duke was 38. Yeah, Duke was higher than I expected when I looked yeah. at Duke. Da- Navy 74. BC 120, Stanford 114. And Navy must have fallen in recent weeks Navy a lot. Did. Yeah. Notre Dame shredded them. Houston shredded them, even though they won that game. Right. Houston was passing the it ball. Was over SMU too? SMU too. So they yeah. had some good passing teams they faced, and then they saw some of the things that Notre Dame was doing and right. took advantage yeah. of that. So the copycatting helps. You know, in terms of total defense, the teams are similar. Um, so the here's the most encouraging thing I can say out of that whole word salad <laughs> is that the 172 plus that he got against Stanford 
was his best against a Power 5 opponent since he got hurt in the Northwestern game in early November. It was his third best mark against a Power 5 team. And I think there's some significance there. Now, how high will that translate next year? Right. He's got to get better in addition to this little wave of improvement. This needs to be the beginning of a trend that continues through spring if he's going to do it against a Wisconsin or Clemson defense. Yeah, and he has to raise his floor. Like His, his bad performances can't be as bad as they were this year. Um, and I think that, that'll go a long way in being able to play well against top competition. The other thing I, I think is we've got to give him some credit for doing this without a traditional running game that was reliable sure. sometimes. Absolutely, they leaned on him hard. And didn't have Braden Lindsey as a player. I think Lindsey opens up a lot of things in the offense. Sure. And uh, and and then also better offensive line play. You know, will that affect it? He He kind of – made a good trend when the offensive line was kind of trending in a bad direction. So there's some good things to take from it, but I I think it's a great unknown. Yeah, I think the encouraging part, despite maybe these defenses not being elite level, is that he looks better when he's doing it. He appears to be processing things better. Right. No matter how good the players are against you, you have to be able to understand what they're doing. Um, and it seems like those things are starting to click for him, and he's getting a better sense for that and getting a better sense for what Notre Dame's offense is trying to do. And maybe there's even a better relationship between him and the and the play caller and Chip Long of, of finding things that he does better and they're on the same page more. So is it sustainable? I think it is sustainable. Will it be sustainable? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. I thought it would have been sustainable this year, um, and we didn't necessarily see that. I think – he played better at Georgia than people will give him credit for um, and certainly played terrible at, at Michigan in, in poor circumstances. But he's going to need to play well against the likes of Wisconsin and Clemson next year for Notre Dame to win those games. Next question is from Jim Falvey at Jim Falvey. What's the status of Ian Book for next season? Is he coming back for a fifth year and also at Notre Dame? I am going to believe that he's coming back and coming back to Notre Dame until I hear otherwise. Right. I don't think the NFL is a viable option for him right now, and I think he'll find that out through his research. He'll get good advice about coming back to school. And I think things ended on a high note with him where I don't think he's going to feel like going to another school would be a great option for him. I think if he did leave and Notre Dame wanted to fortify it's quarterback position. There are grad transfers on the market that look pretty good. I think Jake Bentley from South Carolina is a guy I would look at, and that mm-hmm. doesn't mean he can beat out Phil Jakovic. Right. Um, and Felipe Franks is in the mix. I would pass on that one. Sure, yeah, I um, agree. But I, I just think everybody's going to be bored. Book is going to come back, and he's going to be better, and he's going to be the starter. Yeah, if he's coming back to, to better his prospects of being an NFL player – I think there's a greater risk of him going somewhere else and it going poorly and then him totally wiping out any chance of the NFL. So it, it makes the most sense for him to come back. Now, w- do we know for sure that that's going to happen? No, we don't know yet. He, he left it open-ended. Um, I, I, I would be a bit surprised if he left, but um, I, I think that being the quarterback for three seasons at Notre Dame certainly isn't an easy thing to do either. So um, I think he has some decisions to make and we'll, we'll await um, his decision. Next question is from Gold Shillelagh at Shillelagh Gold. The offensive identity seems clear to me, and it's been clear since Louisville. It seems we're more of an air raid offense. Should going through the air be a major point of emphasis in offensive production next year? 
It's like as the season went along in practice, more emphasis was put on airing it out. The experience and chemistry from practice translated into game day, especially from Ian Book being calmer when dropping back. That's the end of the question there. <laughs> right. I, I mean, there was a lot there to take in, and I try to process all the parts. I like kind of his measured approach where I would um, beg to differ is I don't think it's an air raid offense. Notre Dame is 49th in the country in pass offense and 47th in rush offense. What that looks like if it's a true air raid, USC is 5th in passing offense and 111th in rushing offense. So uh, – I think I think teams like Oklahoma are more balanced, you know, because right. I think you got to go with what your strengths are and and late in the year Notre Dame realized Jafar Armstrong wasn't turning back into the guy that they thought he would be when he was healthy at the beginning of the year and Chase Claypool was a much more of a handful than maybe they gave him credit and then they got better quarterback play. So I think they lean to their strengths. I don't think that necessarily means that's means that's what it's going to look like next year. Right. I think two real key pieces in how this offense looks are Jafar Armstrong and Chris Tyree. Sure. If they are at the high end of expectations, then this offense can do everything well, and then it's a defensive coordinator's nightmare if Book plays well. So uh, – but that's ultimately, I think, what Chip Long would like to build. Whether that's reality or not, we're going to find out. Yeah, I, to me, if Ian Book comes back, he's probably Notre Dame's best player on offense. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree with that? Next season, he's, he's Notre Dame's best he, player he on offense. He certainly is the most proven player. I would start him, I would, yes, at hole number one on the right, golf yeah, course. And, he's yeah, the best guy. Right, yeah, certain guys maybe could play better than him eventually, right. but he's their best guy coming back. So right. I think that's why they would – will rely on their passing game next year but that doesn't mean they need to abandon their running game and make their um, game plan different I think they have to figure out a way to improve the running game and I don't think chip uh, a chip long offense is going to be satisfied with with um, not trying to improve the running game they they've done it this year because they figured okay this is a lost cause look at the Georgia game we're not gonna be able to run the ball so we're gonna throw it as many times as we have to because that's gonna be our best solution but that's not in my opinion that's not the the offense that chip long would like to run so i think um they'll have maybe a better expectation of what they can be going into next season than they did this year i think they probably thought they, they would be able to run the ball this year better than they they were a, able to end up a doing media day brian kelly did <laughs> yeah so um i think that maybe they lower their expectation for the running game while obviously trying to push it to get it to a higher level i think they may know the offense better and and maybe even know ian book better going into next season than they did this year so um, I think they will certainly uh, lean on Ian Book a lot, but in order for this offense to be great um, or even better than it was this year, I don't, I don't know that people would call this offense great this year, is that they need to have do better job establishing the run. Next question is from Mike at Riz Yari Dad. Elston, Mike Elston has done an amazing job with recruiting and coaching. He inherited a position group that had some talented players but relatively poor depth, including the 2020 recruits coming in. What is your projected three deep at each D line position for next year? Okay. I'm going to, um, I'm going to start at the rush end and go with Dalen Hayes as the starter. Yep. I'm going to shake it up and put Isaiah Foskey. Number two, I'll put Ovi Agofu number three. And with Jordan Batello chasing him, the true freshman sure. from Hawaii defensive tackle i guess i went four deep my bad that's all right four deep 
I'll go with Myron Tonga Valoa Amosa, and he is going to be really pushed by Jason Adam Alola. I think Jason is just a good winner weight room away from pushing for that starting position. I think that's maybe his biggest downfall, if I can even call it a downfall, but maybe the biggest area of potential growth is just being bigger. Yeah. Um, I have Cross and then Riley Mills. I wouldn't be surprised if Riley Mills didn't push up a little bit there if he's as good as advertised because he's being compared by some people to Jerry Tillery. Um, Noseguard, Heinish, Lacey, Franklin, and then Aiden Kianaina. Defensive end on the other side, a guy that I have really a lot of respect for the way he's turned himself into a player, Adeo Gandeji, Justin Adamalola, I'll go with Nana Asafa Mensa, and then uh, Alex Ahrensberger, the German import, and Kofi Wardlow can arm wrestle for the fourth and fifth spot. Yeah, I, I have pretty much the exact same list. I the only thing I had switched was Ovi and Isaiah. I'm I like Ovi, so I think there's a chance that he could still play ahead of Isaiah Foskey. Now I think Isaiah Foskey is probably a better player long term, um, but and we and we didn't get to see a ton of Ovi, so. I'm not really sure. I, I don't feel very strongly that it would be Ovi over Isaiah. I wouldn't be surprised either way, but um, I, I think that Ovi could, um, with another good offseason, be in position to, to potentially be that backup defensive end behind Dan Hayes. All right, next question is from Brian Swint at Brian Swint. Has your impression of the program changed from the beginning of the season compared to now, sitting at 10-2? and two? Are you more optimistic, optimistic, disappointed, or no real change as you begin to look forward to 2020? Well, I think what where I measure the program is kind of with recruiting and its kind of basic structure. When Brian Kelly did the 2016 makeover, I like the kind of foundation that's built. So I don't think that shakes a whole lot based on a season we all thought would be 10 and 2 and ended up 10 and 2 just kind of in a different way. Right. But I have different questions about 2020. I'm optimistic sure. that it can be a playoff team. But originally my question was like, how good of a quarterback is Phil Jacoba going to be as a starter? Now I'm looking at Ian Book right. and asking the question, can Ian Book be a Clemson-Wisconsin good? I look at the cornerback position. Yep. Now, they lost two really good athletes to other positions. Avery Davis moved to running back. Mm-hmm. Houston Griffith moved to um, safety. safety. Uh, the offensive line questions. I mean, are they going to be better just because they're healthy and a year older? Um, I feel really good about the linebackers and the safeties uh, better than I thought I would at this stage. And and wide receivers, strangely, I feel good about them even with lack of experience at that position. So feel the same about the program, just have different questions. Yeah, yeah and to me it's a difference of questions about the – team rather than questions about the program to me the program right. is the whole right. whole thing coaching staff right um um player personnel everything the, the recruiting everything everything that goes into putting the team on the field um is the program and to me the program is is where i expected to it to be whether or not the team and i, I the team i predicted to go 10 and 2 so I, I imagine they're in the same spot certainly the questions like you mentioned are different about the team moving forward the running game was way worse than I would have anticipated going into the season, so that remains a question mark going into the season. Um, the other things you mentioned, cornerback, offensive line play, those are all questions moving forward. Um, but, yeah, I think 
the outlook for 2020 has changed so much for me based on Ian Book possibly returning, whereas having Phil Dracovic be a first-time starter. Um, So to me, I believe your ceiling is higher with Ian Book um, returning as a starter next year than what I would have believed the ceiling to be for the team next season if Phil Dracovic was coming in. So um, I think that's kind of how I look at it. Um, Whether or not you want to call that optimistic or not, um, I think – um, I would think we, our job is to have a good sense of where the program is at, and so certainly the, that we have questions about different things, and we had questions about the team going into the season, but Notre Dame answered some of those with good answers, like the linebacker position and kicker with Jonathan Doerr. We had a big question mark there, um, and then other areas like the running game they, they sort of fell flat with. Next question is Derek from Derek Gerber at Irish 2 Do you guys see the jet sweeps? to Braden Lindsay becoming used left less often next year, assuming it works so well because there wasn't much of any film since he didn't play last year that any time he goes in motion next year, teams will be more keen on it and defend it better. Sorry, that was not very well read. But um, So what do you think? Do you think they'll, they'll run less jet sweeps next year? I think they'll run it more as a luxury than as necessity. I think they kind of had to at the end of the year with the – traditional running game banged up uh, and maybe save a little wear and tear on book. Um, I don't think maybe other than the first time they worked because of the element of surprise, I just think they were really well executed. Yes, Um, absolutely. The the other thing that I think is keep running them because I think you tweeted out a, a screen pass where the action was a fake to Lindsay on the jet sweep and half Stanford's defense went that way. Yeah. And then the screen was well set up and executed, and they must have talked to Darius Walker, I guess, <laughs> from last week. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think they have to keep doing them because it does it adds a different wrinkle to the offense, whether or not you're actually handing it off to him or not. Um, the defenses have to respect that, and I think he's, he's proven to be good at it. And like you mentioned, I, I don't think – the, the as soon as he did it once, as soon as the USC game happened, it's like okay, the defense have had defenses had to plan for that, but they still haven't necessarily been able to stop it consistently. So Notre Dame can do it different ways and keep the defense off balance and in, in, in predicting when when or they will or will not give it to him actually. Um, and so and they've done it different ways. They've done jet sweeps. They've done more of an end around where he's coming back around um, uh, after the ball is snapped rather than a jet sweep when you're going in motion um, while the, while the snap is coming. So. Um, I think it, it it needs to continue to be part of the offense, and like you mentioned, that screenplay it, it helped set that up perfectly, um, and it can set them up with different things um, moving forward, and it can even help the running game long term too. So I think um, maybe you don't have you want to lean on Braden Lindsey being the only guy to do that. I think Lawrence Keys can also do that. They haven't used him as much, and he's his role has been lesser in the offense, and Braden has has taken on a bigger role. But I think Lawrence Keys can do similar things. But obviously. Having that threat of those guys being able to turn the corner and, and run by guys is going to going to affect how defenses play against Notre Dame's offense. Next question is from Loyal Son at Show Me Monty. O line issues. How would you evaluate depth going into next year? Average versus meeting expectations. How will we fare if injury bug strikes again? Um, I like. Well, you're going to lose. Um you're going to lose the right guard. Trevor Ruland. Trevor Ruland. How dare you forget Trevor Ruland. <laughs> I know. I know. He's he's my hero, I guess. Um, you know, at center, you have Zeke Carell, who I think they like. He's pretty small. He's going to have to get bigger. Yep. And when he does, I think they're going to feel 
pretty good about that position. Um, offensive guard, I think there's a little bit of trouble brewing there because I think if they yep. were really happy with Dirksen and, and Dylan Gibbons, those guys would have played more. Yeah, they would have been in a timeshare with Trevor Rowland, which Kelly seemed to say that would be what happened once they just had to put Trevor Rowland in the lineup and it never actually actually came about and it hasn't actually been the case. Right, so Josh Lugg is probably your best backup at a lot of positions and then you look at tackles, Lugg there too, but there were high hopes, I think, that Quinn Carroll would develop this year. He got hurt in yep. August, yep. so that kind of set him back. Um, Christophic, it seems like he's been banged up a little bit here toward the end of the season. I think they love his athleticism, but there needs to he needs to be in the oven a little bit longer. Um, I think I wouldn't rule out Tosh Baker, the true freshman. From, yeah, I like him a lot as a recruit. Yeah, being in the mix. So if they, you know, they're going to have to bring the depth along because in 2021, and there's there's a really good recruit in 2021, maybe two, but with um, Blake Fisher. Blake Fisher. They're going to lose three starters after 2020 and maybe four if Banks goes with them. So you better be bringing along the depth and developing those guys. So that's my thought. Yeah, and, and I think that's this is that to me that's where Jeff Quinn will be tested. Obviously, he's tested already with with trying to improve the running game and get rid, having these guys not jump off sides for false starts. But it, can he can he develop the depth on the offensive line because? To me, going into next season, Josh Lugg is really the only guy that is even anywhere close to challenging anyone for a starting spot uh, of the returning original returning five starters. So I think that um, whether or not he can, I think he's, he probably ends up still being a super sub. I'd like to see him maybe push Aaron Banks at left guard because I don't think Aaron Banks had a very good season for what my expectations were for him. Um, so I think that he's probably – the guy, he probably he could potentially be the next guy in at all five positions for Notre Dame right. next season. Um, I I didn't love the recruiting class that Harry Heastan left at the at the end of that includes Cole Mabry and John Dirksen um, had included Luke Jones who left and then um, I'm leaving out someone um, oh Jared Patterson yeah. um, who's the starting center so obviously he's he's come along but. I think, but that that one really was Quinn locking that right, one, right? Yeah, absolutely. But it's still the same class, and I think right. that. Um, so I think, obviously, Harry Heastan left a lot of talented offensive alignment for Notre Dame, but I think he left the cupboard a little bit more bare than he normally had with previous recruiting classes. That wasn't the typical offensive line recruiting class that Harry Heastan um, was getting at Notre Dame. So um, I do like the freshman class th- this year. I, I like Zeke Carell and uh, Quinn Carroll. I think Andrew Christoffel can be a player long term too. He has he has rooms to go in terms of um, being physically ready. I thought Quinn Carroll was the most um, physically ready guy, but he he had the uh, the injury that sidelined him. So um, we'll have to see how those guys develop because to me, a lot of those guys are question marks still, um, and and they probably need to be more than question marks going into the next season if Josh Lugs can really backup that you feel really good about going into next season next question is from joe at joey salvatore i know you've discussed this but notre dame had four more false start penalties i believe it was only three and only is is, is a sarcastic uh only at stanford hardly a distracting at- atmosphere overall 11 penalties for 95 yards how can the o-line and team as a whole get better in preparation for the bowl game and on whose shoulders do the penalties lie Okay, let's start with the 
second part of that. I would say the the shoulders that they lie are long. Uh, Coach Long, Coach Quinn, and Brian Kelly. I think they have to get it together. And I don't know if this is a book problem. We've we've talked about that Indian book right. problem. Uh-huh. We don't know if it's a lineman problem. We don't know if it's a Chip Long, Jeff Quinn problem. Right. And and that's what Notre Dame needs to get to the bottom of, and yes. we will eventually as well. Uh, but we know it's not a crowd noise problem. Right, yeah, that yeah, can be ruled out, absolutely. <laughs> after after the Boston College game and the Stanford game, yep. it was not. It could be a tree problem, a fake tree problem. <laughs> it could be a mums problem, but not that. Yeah, I, to me, the false start issues, there, there's, either, there's either three things that can be at, at fault here. Either they're not practicing well enough, or the players are just bad at it, or the cadence process is failing them and needs to be changed. And um, I think it's probably a mixture of all of those things. Um, to me, so one of the biggest things that I, I'm questioning this clapping cadence is I don't know. I don't know how you tweak it to improve the 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 results. Obviously, the players just have to be better at it and and not move until Ian Book claps. But if you have a verbal cadence, you can kind of change it up where. You can always just say, okay, we're going on set hut, and so when that happens every time, you just go. And certainly the defense is going to know what's happening, but there's a repetition to it that the offensive line is going to know, and, and they'll likely not have false starts because they're just waiting for the same thing. But with the clapping, like I've mentioned before, you're just kind of sitting there waiting for it, and there's not as the, the rhythm to it that, that can be developed. So I don't, I don't know how they improve it. So I think it's on a, incumbent upon the coaching staff to figure out how to improve it because right. the players aren't good at it for whatever reason whether that's the players are just bad at it they're not teaching them well the coaches have to figure out okay this isn't working we need to do something differently because if the, the results are showing that, it, that it's, it's not working and whether or not um, they need to get new offensive linemen in there that are better at, at knowing when to move on the on the clapping sound maybe that's what they have to do but um, I think it's on the Notre Dame coaching staff to adjust because they're, they're clearly being given the evidence that whatever they're doing isn't working. Next question is from the Jackal at the underscore Jack attack. Will Boston college or any other school make a run at Clark Lee? What are the chances he stays? Well, if I were an athletic director, I would certainly have him as somebody I would want to check out just based on his limited experience as a coordinator. I don't think specifically with the Boston College job that he would jump into that candidate pool. I actually think Mike Elko will. Um, if he's interested in that, he's has the ties in that part of the country, and he's more experienced and I think probably more ready to be a head coach. I think the one job that could have been part of Clark Lee's decision-making process this offseason is Vanderbilt, and Vanderbilt – decided to bring Derek Mason back for another year. I think my prediction is that job will open up next year. Right. And then he'll have a decision to make. And I think there's some familiarity with Vanderbilt, obviously him, one of the three colleges he attended. (laughs) Um, And also, you know, having family back there and being familiar with that recruiting territory. I think he could recruit anywhere. But I don't see him as being real itchy. I think he wants – a good job where he has a chance to succeed, not like something like Connecticut where it's just it, – that's what happened to Bob Diaco. He, and he's now had trouble becoming an assistant again. And right. He's had to kind of scrounge for jobs. So you don't want to go down that road where it's it's you have no chance to succeed. Yeah, if Clark 
Lee really wants to be the head coach at Vanderbilt, it makes the most sense for him to stay put and just wait for that job to come open. Um, I would think any any Power Five school like Boston College would would it would it, it it would have to be to the level of a Power Five school like that to attract Clark Lee away because of the looming possibility of potentially going back to to Vanderbilt on the horizon. So I'm not certain that that Boston College would be a match for him. I know you mentioned Mike Elko being more tied to that region, so maybe that makes more sense. And I, I think Clark Lee is a good recruiter. Um, I don't know that I would put him at a level of being a great recruiter. I think he's probably best recruiting at a school that fits his personality well, um, and so the, and also recruiting players that fit his personality well. So I think that it, it's a little bit more of a specific niche that Clark Lee needs to find when picking a school that he would become the head coach at and have success at than just being, okay, I think we all believe that Clark Lee is a good to great coach of coaching defense, but in order to be a head coach and to be a good recruiter, um, I think that it needs to be very pretty specific um, in terms of his fit. So I think that's um, could potentially work in Notre Dame's favor in, in terms of him staying there because I don't know that he um, would be a great fit at just say any school um, as a head coach, and I think that um, his best fits would be a, in a smaller pool. Um, whether or not that includes Boston College, I'm not sure, um, but. I, I would be, I would be doubtful that that would be enough to lure him away from Notre Dame. Next question is from seven dollars worth of Hoobastank at Buster Biven. Over under two and a half new assistant coaches on the staff when the Irish kick off the twenty twenty season in Dublin. I think the only guy that's eager to be a head coach right now is probably Brian Poley, and he he interviewed during the last coaching cycle and there's usually a surprise and so that would still leave me under two and a half even if both those things happen which I'm not convinced are absolute so I'm going under I'm being a pessimist and thinking about my potential workload in the offseason <laughs> so I just it just feels like we're due for a, an eventful offseason um, so I will go over um, I, I it's not something that I would say I'm anticipating happening um, but I just think that it, it a lot a lot of things don't necessarily stay the same in, in Notre Dame's program for very long. So I think there are coaches that could be attracted somewhere else, and Notre Dame could decide to to make changes along the coaching staff based on uh, results from this season. And um, I think even even guys like Tommy Reese could be could be poached from the program as potentially an offensive coordinator. If someone wanted to do that. So um, I think there are. Um, coaches on this coaching staff that would be attractive higher somewhere it just um, could be um, come down to whether or not those coaches feel like they need to leave and do something else or if they they feel like their their best fit is here at Notre Dame so we will see Um, I I think for our sanity I would I would hope for the under but I I, like I like I mentioned I'm being pessimistic and and guessing that we're going to be having to track a lot of coaching coaching staff movement in the offseason Next question is from Billy Smith at Billy underscore E underscore Smith. Who are the most likely to leave the coaching staff? Which is kind of similar. We sort of touched on that already a little bit. All right. I'd say the one that I didn't mention there, and and I don't I don't want to speculate loosely. The, I, I want to have a, a theory, not a not a weird rumor. Would be kind of the chain of events if and when Mike Norvell from. Memphis gets hired at one of these other jobs because there would be the thought that Chip Long would be somebody that they would look at him having coached there a little bit, right. him having run a similar system to Mike Norvell, those guys having worked together, that Memphis may think that that's a good thing. It's just 
whether other candidates would emerge that are better than Chip or whether Chip is interested in leaving Notre Dame at this time. So, And if Chip left, does Dell Alexander go with him? So, right. So there's where Tyler's workload um, <laughs> question is coming in. It's just play. mine now? It's not It's not yours? <laughs> well, um, it could be mine, too. I, I would be commenting on them where you would be doing the chasing, right? Oh, I understand. I understand. Yeah, I know we would share it. Um, yeah, and so I, I think there's any number of things that could happen. And I don't know that Chip Long makes sense as the head coach of Mississippi or Missouri, but he's an SEC type coach in my mind. That's the area of the country that I think he would do best in. So, so maybe one of those schools is convinced that he's the answer there. I, I, it would be a bit of a surprise to me, but I think anything's possible, um, when it, when it comes to head coaching searches, because I think, um, it's so unpredictable who's going to pan out to be a good head coach and who isn't. So um, I, I'm not willing to rule anything out. And like I mentioned, Tommy Reese could maybe be um, an attractive option um, for um, an, a coordinator position. Obviously, Northwestern has an offensive coordinator opening, and he has some familiarity with Northwestern. Maybe that would be attractive to him. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe There's nowhere to go but up there. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Talk about having a low bar to pass. <laughs> Improving that offense wouldn't be very hard because it's about as bad as it gets. Um, and, and maybe there's a change for the sake of change and, and Notre Dame deciding to um, move on from some coaches. So um, I, I don't know that um, – I don't know that it's necessarily a very short list. I think I think there's a chance that a, a number of guys could could leave, and um, if if the right situation presents themselves, I think like you met Brian Polian is a guy that has been a head coach before. If there were a situation that arose that he could be a head coach, I, I think Mike Elson wants to be a head coach at some point down the line. If if there's a situation that that fits him well and someone uh, attracts him, I don't necessarily see those openings right now. Um, that that makes sense to me, but um, you never really know. Next question is from Tom Schuster at TJS Domer Two. Is lack of good bowl access a clear disadvantage of independence? Absolutely not. Um, and people are getting so twisted by this. Yeah. And this, it's an anomaly year, right? Right. It's an anomaly year, and 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 it's because Notre Dame lost to Michigan by thirty-one point problem. It's not an independence problem. Let me give you a couple things. If if Notre Dame were in uh, in a conference. They would be, um, they would probably end up in the Big Twelve. If they were in the Big Twelve, they would probably be in the Camping World Bowl. Right. If not, it would be the Alamo Bowl. Um, they would be in the fourth Big Ten Bowl. They would be in the sixth SEC Bowl based on their ranking. I'm, I, we don't know how they finished. Right. The and just to clear up, you you were. I think you had a slip of the words there, and I don't want anyone to read into. It. You're not saying that the way you said it. If they were in a conference, they would be in the Big Twelve. That's not that's not what no, you know. Yeah. If they were in the Big Twelve, that's where they yeah, would they would that, line up. This is where they end up. <laughs> sure. Pac twelve, third, ACC second, they would be on the other side of the orange, which I think is where people are getting hung up on that right. this team that Notre Dame beat is in the orange and they're upset about that. This ACC bowl agreement has been good for them. If they were not in it, if yep. they did not have this, these are the bowls that they would be picking from, the ones that don't have enough to fill their uh, their quota. Independence, which is in Shreveport. Your favorite. Cure, Cheez-It, First Responder, Belk, Birmingham, Armed Forces, and Liberty, 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 <laughs> Liberty. Those would be your choices. That's yeah. the dumpster dive. Last thing I want to say on this, if Notre Dame beats Michigan, Mm-hmm. They're in the playoff discussion right now. Yeah, absolutely. When they lost that game, 
they were number eight in the country. Utah was 12 and Oklahoma was five. Oklahoma had not yet lost to an unranked Kansas State team. So there's a chance that Notre Dame would be in that discussion. You could say, well, these teams have a play, chance to play for conference championships. Well, let me just throw a little data at <laughs> oh, you here. Oh, man, Eric's just okay. busting out the notebook over here. I did, a, I did a look at what teams' records are versus the top 25 mm-hmm. right now and then how many teams they've beaten with 500 or better records. And there's how there's three teams that have played five top twenty five teams, almost fifty percent of their schedule. Mm-hmm. That's Notre Dame, Michigan, and Auburn. So Oklahoma is one and zero against the top twenty five. Uh, Utah is zero and one against the top twenty five. Utah has beaten five winning teams or five hundred teams. Right. Oklahoma four, Notre Dame six. If they had beaten Michigan, that number grows to seven. And Notre Dame would be four and one against the top twenty-five. So even with, I'm not going to say data points. So don't even think that. <laughs> even without the thirteenth game, Notre Dame would have a strong argument. I'm not saying they would get in because the whole Georgia juxtaposition is kind of weird there, especially if Georgia loses to LSU. But I think that Notre Dame would be in the conversation. So them being an independent is not hurting them, and I've given you all these different ways. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go a completely different direction because you've established all that very well. To me, it is interesting, and it seems very befitting of Notre Dame fans to be upset about this because it seems like most Notre Dame fans are national title or, or bust. And so to me, why are you? Why does it matter what bowl they're going to be? If it's not the college football playoff, don't you, don't, don't you not care what the bowl is going to be? But – I think the fan base that is like, why can't we get in the Orange Bowl? Are these fans that still think the Orange Bowl have has has a meaning to it because of its prestige? When in in reality, it doesn't mean that much. It, it if it's not in the playoffs, shouldn't you not care about the Orange Bowl anyway? So um, it, it's just it's kind of it's funny to me how and maybe these are different people that have these different opinions and they're all melding into one one voice in, in my in my Twitter mentions. But I just think that. Um, bowl access to me doesn't really seem that big of a, a deal, and I, I think to me the the Camping World Bowl, the fact that they're going to play a, a, a less than exciting Big Twelve team is probably the big. If it was a camping, if they were playing in the Camping World Bowl and they were playing a team you were excited to play against or that would challenge you, then I don't think people would care that it was called the Camping World Bowl or that it was in Orlando or it was on. I this, think the Camping World Bowl they get hung up on the name. If it was imported caviar bowl, <laughs> they would feel better about it. But strangely, I think. If Texas ends up being the team and it looks more and more like it is, Notre Dame fans will feel better about that. They know. Yeah, but I think that's dumb. Texas isn't I know. good. I know. <laughs> and they just fired both of their coordinators. <laughs> right, right. And so that, that victory means nothing. Just because they're Texas doesn't mean that it's an important victory. Yeah, but Texas is back, aren't they? Yeah, beating Oklahoma State would be more impressive than beating Texas. It sure would be. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the whole bowl conversation is funny, and uh, I'm glad you had so many opinions on it. Uh, next one is from Mick Rouch at mrouch3389. What argument have you had enough of? Fire Kelly, he can't win the big game. Bench book, he's hit his three-star ceiling. Or fire Kelly and bench book. I'm going off the board here to one. I got a little Twitter spat, and I don't usually do oh, this on nice. Saturday. Oh, nice. I didn't see this. Um, I, oh, maybe I did. I think I might know what it is yeah. now. You don't ask enough tough <laughs> follow-up <laughs> questions to Brian Kelly. Uh, because and You're that's defending why, my honor, too. And that's why they're jumping off sides <laughs> and jumping, uh, committing false start penalties. I'm th- I finally asked the guy, I go, what's this insightful, daring question that 
that would keep the false starts. And he says, telling the alumni why we're not a power running team or something like that. The whole premise that a press conference question could change a team's behavior is beyond me. And and if you've seen the format of the press conferences, especially the Monday ones, okay, you, you ask your questions. Let's say somebody else asked, like you asked about the offensive line. Right. I didn't like the way he answered your question. Am I supposed to throw a shoe at that point? <laughs> because I'm not getting the microphone back. Right, right. And, I mean, certainly I could have asked 20 questions about the offensive line, but I think people would have started throwing shoes at me at that point. Um and I, I still have more questions about the cadence and, and how and it's that. Not, and it's not unique to this particular sure, question. Sure, right. No, said that before. no I, yeah, I understand. And, and and when I'm asking Brian Kelly a question about the clapping cadence, how long they've used it, and I, I explaining yeah. this, I, I said, Liam Eikenberg says it. this is why it's difficult. It's a really good line of question. And, and, uh, Brian Kelly sort of dismisses that. He said, well, you shouldn't be worried about the, the other sounds. You should be worrying about the, the clapping cadence and, and blocking the guy in front of him. So I, I don't know. I, I'm not asking that question saying, okay, if I ask Brian Kelly this question, he's going to go back to Jeff Quinn and Chip Long and say, hey, we need to change our clapping cadence. I'm not asking it for that reason. I'm trying to understand why they're doing it and what, what the advantages of it are, and is that an explanation for why these false starts are happening? Uh, we don't ask questions with the – goal of being Notre Dame changing something or, or improve our questions aren't meant to improve the program in any way that is not our job um, and I don't know that we should be held responsible for that I think certainly we need to be asking you questions and people can can question why we're asking certain things I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that but I, I think the right. the intent of our questions what you want us to ask and the reason why you want us to ask it isn't going to be the same. So I, I, I agree with you there. I, I hadn't considered that when, when we were given these things, but more specifically to these um, top or um, I guess arguments that he, he put in front of us to me, I, w- I went with three fire Kelly and book and bench book because to me, they're similar in that. Who's your better option? Who, who's going to do better than Brian Kelly at, as the head coach in our name right now? I don't have a good answer for that. Who's the better quarterback in Notre Dame's roster right now? I don't have a good answer for that. I thought they were both, and I still believe that Ian Book was the better quarterback, best quarterback on Notre Dame's roster, and I think Brian Kelly is probably the best available, reasonable coach for Notre Dame at at this time that would that would take the Notre Dame coaching job. So, and and would be offered it. So, that's kind of how I go on that. But yes, I, I I do remember it was I think it was during the Stanford game, so I wasn't really yeah. paying attention to it as much. Um, but I, I I noticed one of my I was in one of the replies, so I I, I thought that was kind of funny. And it certainly it's not the first time that the people, especially I think in the 2016 seasons when I noticed it the most that they thought the program was failing because we weren't answering the hard questions in a, in a tough season. And uh, to me, uh, I, I, I don't ha- I don't understand do that concept. Tough questions. What you want is an answer, and and. You don't always, if they give an answer that's a word salad, you know, you're not going to, you know, why isn't Brian, Brayden Lindsay playing? He's got fatigue. Come on, Brian, give me a better answer than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I never learned to read. <laughs> so, okay, go ahead. <laughs> All right. We got a couple more questions. Next one is from Andrew Barlow. I think these will be less uh, aggravating. Next question is from, and I guess the last question wasn't aggravating, but it led it led you to an aggravating point. Oh, of course. Next question from Andrew Barlow at Barl Andrew is Lenzi this decade's rocket and or Getherall? Did Michigan's pettiness and utter lack of integrity make them lose intentionally to Ohio State to kill ND's strength of schedule? And do ND fans who bemoan anything less than on field perfection hold themselves to the same standard in their lives? 
I think Lindsey is going to be his own thing. The fact that he's not involved in returns yet kind of differentiates him from Getherall and, and Rocket. Um, and those guys were outstanding on returns, and I think Lindsey could be too. But I think he's he's different, and uh, I'm I'm eager to see where all this goes. Um, as far as the Michigan strategy, I think that's pretty funny. I think if I were Jim Harbaugh, I would go with that. Yeah. And as far as the perfection, I loved that question because I do kind of wonder that sometimes when people want to fire Jeff Quinn or they want to fire this, if if they were held to that standard in their own work, <laughs> how long would they have had their job? <laughs> yeah, how long would they have their job? So I, I think that's very astute by Andrew Barlow. I think uh, <laughs> to me it's funny that people are still – have any interest in Notre Dame strength of schedule that, that and I know he's joking about Michigan losing to to impact Notre Dame strength of schedule but I I have stopped caring about Notre Dame strength of schedule I think to to me my thought on the, the demanding perfection and I and I kind of made a joke about it this weekend um cuz I ran into a very squeaky moving walkway in the airport when we were waiting for our delayed flight back from San Francisco is and I and I recorded it and said this is what Notre Dame fans sound like when when the Irish are losing in the first quarter and to me, that I think it's understandable to be worried and nervous while a game is happening. But I think, to me, people jumped so far ahead and and jumped to points where they're like, "This always happens. We're always we're never prepared for games when, or we never blow out teams." And they did, they blow out blew out plenty of teams this year. That's probably the most prolific blowout season Notre Dame's had in recent memory. Um, we're never prepared. Notre Dame has shut out opponents in the first quarter six times this season. How do you be not prepared and, and that happen? That doesn't they, they, those, those don't jive to, in, in my mind. So I think everyone kind of just takes three steps too far when something's happening. Certainly, and I think Notre Dame has done a good job this year, uh, except for the Michigan game, in terms of okay, when these struggles come upon them in a game, they f- figure out a way to adjust and, and be better at it. And um, I, I would say maybe it was the reverse in the USC game where it seemed to get a little bit tight there down towards the end um, but Notre Dame has for the most part of the season responded in good ways and, and done a good job of that so I think that, that that's that's the biggest nitpick I have is that okay not every every punt means this offense is the worst offense of all time teams are allowed to punt the best offenses in college football punt the football you have to have some patience that's how the game of football works it's not perfection on every drive Oh man, certainly it's not going to be a perfect season every year. But I understand the frustration. I'm a Chicago Bears fan, and I vent plenty on Twitter about that. I think I kind of do it to to let you guys know that I have 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 similar feelings about about different teams. But um, I just think uh, everyone needs to chill out a little bit. All right, last one is from Andrew Callen at a Callen one, and he said in parentheses, joking for anyone who didn't get the joke. Notre Dame is 22 and three with the college football playoff appearance since Mike Farrell left the Notre Dame football beat for the University of Washington, while the Huskies have gone 17-9 and during that time with um, Chris Peterson now stepping down. Is Mike a coach killer, or has Carter Carls just been the kind of game-changing five-star recruit we've been lacking? Um... <laughs> <laughs> Can I say it? Uh, okay, here's here's what I'm going to say. I don't think either is the answer. I think what's happened is that RB sales in the Pacific Northwest have gone drastically down because Mike Varel will not let his coworkers eat lunch there, nor will he eat lunch there. That's my answer. Carter Carls has been a game-changing five-star recruit when it comes to promoting our ND Insider premium 
um, sale, which is ends actually tonight, Tuesday. So if you hear this before the end of Tuesday night and you're not a subscriber, go to ndinsider.com forward slash special offer and you can get an entire year's worth of an ND Insider premium subscription for $69, which is a 30% cent, 30 off discount. And Carter had a great uh, Baby Yoda tweet video that if you are into Baby Yoda or Star Wars anyway and Notre Dame, I think you'll enjoy it. So go check that out. Um, and uh, hopefully uh, if you take advantage of that subscription, we have plenty of content for you um, to get you through the next few weeks. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. The Pot of Gold podcast is presented each week by Zaxby's. Satisfy your craving for hand-breaded chicken and fresh-made salads. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today or order online at zaxby's.com forward slash podcast. And Tire Rack, the way tire buying should be. We'll be back at the end of the next week with another podcast to talk a little bit about Notre Dame's bowl opponent and preview the early signing period. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs.